Hi, I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespot.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women and author of the Amazon bestseller, You're Not Broke, You're Pre-Rich. And this is The Wallet. The Wallet is here to help you make better financial decisions by talking honestly about money. I'll be sharing my best tips, inspiring you to take charge of your financial futures and talking to an array of awesome guests from all walks of life, employees, freelancers, entrepreneurs, and money experts. Financial education has been part of the compulsory national curriculum in England since 2014. However, in 2017, a study released by Young Money titled The Ticking Time Bomb of Generation Debt was critical of many secondary schools and said that the education about money has stalled. According to the London Institute of Banking and Finance, after five years of financial education being in the national curriculum, it's not adding up for young people. 69% of students still regularly worry about money, and 82% want to learn more about money in school. With our financial habits formed as young as seven years old, as parents or guardians, how can we start the conversation of money at home and introduce the concept of finances to kids? Joining me today is Helen Driver, ex-fund manager who spent 20 years in the city and founder of Money Ready, an interactive financial education platform for children and parents. Her mission is to ensure the next generation is ready to face their financial futures with confidence. Together, we take a look at how parents can start introducing financial concepts, such as delayed gratification, budgeting and saving, helpful tools to use, and how to build up a young person's knowledge and money skills over time. We also talk about saving for children and how and when to start. If you don't have kids, don't worry. This episode is still relevant because it's full of life-changing financial tips. I hope you enjoy it. I also wanted to let you know that we are not financial advisors. So the articles, the information made available on Vespot.com and in this podcast are provided just for educational purposes and do not constitute financial advice. So make sure you consult with an independent financial advisor for advice on your specific circumstances. Hi, Helen. Good morning, Emily. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Um, all things considered. <laughs> of course. <laughs> But thanks God, today we're not going to talk about lockdown. We're going to talk about uh, helping uh, kids manage their own finances and also give a few tips for parents. Great. So we've had a great conversation last week and, and that was about, you know, empowering kids, empowering women financially, more, more generally. And what I love is we have quite similar background or we worked in the, in the financial industry. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you did before setting up Money Ready? So maybe about yourself and your background, please. Yeah, of course. So, um, so before I came to start Money Ready, I was actually a fund manager and I became a fund manager straight after uh, leaving university or certainly worked up to becoming a fund manager. So um. For, for, for those listeners who don't know what a fund manager is, it's actually someone who is investing in companies which are listed on the stock market and managing funds, investment funds and portfolios for their clients. So in the very early days, my role was to analyze companies, look at their businesses and their sort of financial track records 
and, and also project forward and, and, and look at how these businesses and these companies were likely to perform in the future and really try and value those companies. And then after several years of being an investment analyst and having completed uh, some formal qualifications, I then became a fund manager. And, and what that involved was I was still analysing the companies, but also managing portfolios, typically on behalf of large uh, corporate pension schemes or the pension schemes of local authorities. And I was um, in, investing the money in those funds into companies which um, were listed and trading on the UK stock market. So um, that really was what I was doing from leaving university right up to starting uh, starting Money Ready. The, the only difference being as I progressed through my career, I started investing not just in UK companies, but also what we call global equities. Um, so global companies, those trading on other stock markets, such as the US stock market, uh, European stock markets and beyond. But um, it was a, it's fair to say it was a fascinating role and I got to meet some fascinating people, many CEOs and financial directors and chairmen and chair ladies of UK's largest listed companies. So there's, there's plenty of stories to tell, but I think that's for another time. <laughs> now, of course, I, I, you, you'll come back on the podcast and we'll talk about investing because I'm sure people would love that. But I want to talk about your now your second career. So after, you know, leaving the investment management industry, you decided to launch Money Ready and you're going to tell us what it is. But you also retrained uh, or trained as a, as a money coach and financial advisor. Why is that? And, and I mean, how do you make the transition from more like a corporate role to more like a personal finance role? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good question because it's it's not necessarily um, obvious, but it, it, I guess it was part of my research for Money Ready and really trying to draw a complete picture of financial capability and uh, understanding of personal finance, I guess. And, and I really did it, the financial advice um, qualification that I got and the money coach training it was it was partly out of professional development and it was it was partly out of personal curiosity if i'm honest so the financial ad advisor qualification specifically focused on more technical understanding of different um, financial products and the regulatory sort of landscape but i was always conscious with traditional financial ad advice that it actually only serves quite a small small proportion of people. So I think I've read somewhere that one in 10 people in the UK receive regulated financial advice. And, and that's great, but that, that leaves a significant gap for those who are seeking help with their finances, but perhaps don't have lots of savings or lots of investments and assets behind them and don't feel that regulated or traditional financial advice is for them. So that, that's why I was drawn to um, financial coaching as an alternative. And it's quite different because unlike regulated financial advisors, a financial coach does not provide specific financial product advice. So it's not going to advise you to invest here or put more money into your mortgage or whatever. But instead, it's much more focused on building knowledge and confidence to support people to make their own financial decisions. So it's, it's really sort of empowering, empowering people to take control of their finances, to, to feel confident, relieve some of that anxiety and stress around money 
and perhaps even sort of strengthen their relationship with money or even their relationship with others because um, money uh, can play quite an important role in relationships. So that's really what sort of prompted me to do it. It was sort of, as I say, personal curiosity, I guess, and um, as well as that sort of trying to fill in the gaps of what does um, good sort of financial advice or financial education look like. Yeah, no, that that's really interesting and and yeah, well done for for doing it because yeah. these you know these exams take take time and once you've spent you know, maybe I don't know maybe twenty years uh, in the city and you feel like you yes, it was yeah, just, just <laughs> over twenty years, yeah, yeah, and, and retrain. I mean, um, that's that's fantastic, and I guess that also helped you building money ready. So money ready, I mean, you you can tell us what it is, but it's an online financial education platform for kids age seven to 18. So what's your mission with, with money ready? And what are the tools you're, you're using basically to, to help uh, children understand their finances? So th- the mission is really very simple. And it, it actually comes back to what I just talked about in terms of adults as well. It's, it's really trying to ensure that the next generation is ready to face their financial futures with confidence. So it's really about introducing learning about money habits and money attitudes from a young age and giving them the tools and the knowledge that they need to face financial futures with confidence. So it's not something to be fearful of. I'm a great believer in the idea that you don't have to be a maths genius to be good with money, albeit that's probably quite a controversial thing to say today because um, I think today is the start of Numbers Confidence Week. And don't get me wrong, numeracy is is important. And if we can uh, raise um, the standard and the level of numeracy, that's that's clearly very helpful as well. But um, start talking about it. It's, it's, um, It's a subject which... It is now on the secondary school curriculum, but it has only been on the school curriculum for about five years. And children are still leaving school and saying they don't feel that they learned enough about uh, money and they don't they lack that confidence. So that the mission really is um, all about, as I say, giving giving children confidence so that when as they move into their adult lives, they can make good financial decisions. And I guess the inspiration for it came really from. I mean, I am a mum. I've got two teenagers myself. So ensuring that they had grew up with a sound understanding and a sort of healthy relationship with money was a real motivation. Uh, you might, well, you may or may not be surprised that um, it partly came through speaking to, to women, actually. And I know your mission is about empowering women to be confident to manage their own money. And what I've found, I think is it comes back to the fund management. So I was seen as somebody who how can I put it, who got money? I worked in the city. Um, I understood investments. I understood pensions. So I was seen as a sort of a friendly face or a trusted person to go to, particularly by women who were really seeking guidance on everything from it could be debt problems to investing or pensions. And I think, as I say, they came to me because there was this assumption that if you're working with money, albeit in quite a different context, that you would sort of understand this stuff and be able to help them. And what was so interesting is when I had those conversations, the response was always the same. And that response was, I wish I'd learned about money when I was young. And so really that was that was what planted the seed for for Money Ready. And yeah, that that that's really where it all started. 
Yeah, and uh, thank you for that. It's really, really important to to understand that you know financial education is key. And you know, when I wrote my book, "You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich," I was so surprised to read that we acquire financial habits very young. I think they are set by the age of of seven years old. Yeah. And I never received any financial education. Obviously, uh, I guess most of what we learn is basically coming from our parents who are not necessarily educated either about money. Yeah. So, you know, we acquire beliefs, we start, you know, building our money stories and, and scripts. And then, yeah, we, you know, we, we graduate and the first thing we, we get is a, is a credit card, yeah. um, which is very, very frustrating. So how important is it to actually teach kids uh, about money from, from a young age? Well, I, I appreciate I'm biased, um, but I I think it is essentialized, and I strongly strongly believe that it's actually it's an essential life skill. The reason I say that is whether you are of modest means or a millionaire, money is something that touches everyone's life. It's just it it's it's not an option. <laughs> and um, it, it's interesting you say you didn't have. Uh, sort of a formal financial education, Emily, because actually you're, you're you're not unusual in that, and I, I didn't either. And um, so there was no sort of lessons about money at school. I, I think I actually sort of learnt through osmosis from my parents. To be honest with you, I saw how my parents uh, managed, and my mum in particular used to sort of juggle with a budget. I think that's where a lot of my own personal learnings come come from but you're quite right not all parents are great with money and and I think that's why it is so important that lessons about money are included in school as well because there will be children in depending on circumstances not everyone is going to be fortunate to have strong role models or come from a home with sort of solid financial foundations so that is why I think it's so key and and to be honest this all bears out in a lot of the statistics around adults and money because I mean over in the UK over a million adults are what we call financially excluded so they do not have access to basic financial services like a bank account and this in turn can lead to something that we call the poverty premium and this is where often if you don't have a bank account you can't pay by direct debit or standing orders and you actually end up paying higher prices for basic services, which just seems wrong. So financial education is absolutely vital to breaking um, some of these cycles of poverty or poor financial capability, which can then lead on to things like financial exclusion. As I say, I'm biased, but I think it is an absolute essential life skill that we should be teaching our kids. No, I, I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, people recognize that and the government put financial education as part of you the, the compulsory national curriculum. You mentioned that I think since 2014, I mean, I don't think that has been working so well. I think if you look at the statistics, it's not very encouraging. So the, you know, the, the results are not necessarily there. Why do you think is that? And why do you think we then need platforms like private platforms such as, such as Money Ready? Again, I, I I agree with you, Emily. In terms of, I think I think putting financial education on the secondary school national curriculum, it was definitely a step in the right direction. 
but it was no silver bullet. And I think it partly comes down to how it works in practice. And the truth is how it works in practice very much depends upon individual schools and the types of schools. So when we talk about a national curriculum, that means that local authority funded uh, schools must follow the curriculum. But with the increasing numbers of academies or independent schools, now they, they do not, they're not necessarily required to follow the curriculum. So ironically, just as the subject came onto the national curriculum, there's an increasing number of schools which don't necessarily have to follow the national curriculum. So I think that's that's one thing. I think there are all sorts of different obstacles to overcome in terms of financial education, actually. And one of them is, even though it's on the national curriculum, it actually straddles two different subjects. So it straddles maths, and but it also straddles what we call PSHE. So this is um, so those sort of, again, these social sort of life skills. But PSHE can cover everything from sexual health education, online privacy and security, uh, drugs and alcohol abuse, all those kind of lessons. So to then ask those teachers to teach a subject like financial education, which is actually quite fast moving, you know, prices and values are changing all the time and new products are coming out. It's a huge challenge. So financial education doesn't have that sort of standalone it's not a standalone subject. And as we know, schools are very time pressured, uh, resource constrained. So it's easy to see how it can sort of really fall, sort of fall through the net, um, whether it's through the net of maths and PSHE, or whether it's just through the net of there's just too many things to cover. And perhaps uh, the teachers who are delivering it perhaps don't have that confidence themselves to deliver uh, financial education. So I think there's there, there's lots of reasons why it's been a great step. And there are some phenomenally talented and dedicated teachers out there delivering financial education. Let's not forget that. But we've got to make it so it's for everybody. And I think it's a subject, as we've, as we've talked about, parents play a role. So it, it straddles both home and school. Um, so we really need a solution that works works across both. Yeah. And interestingly, I think you know, a few people have been working on, on this and helping schools. And Martin Lewis, I mean, I'm sure you've read this report, uh, the founder of Money Saving Expert, he founded actually a textbook called Your Money Matters for state funding English secondary schools. And this, I mean, you can download it. I think it's really well written. I think it's really good. It's a really good textbook. Maybe parents could start reading this. I mean, have you have you been using it? Have you read it? I have. I've got a copy myself and it isn't excellent resource. There is absolutely no doubt about that. And really, what I guess what Money Ready seeks to do is it, it seeks to build on that. And the difference with Money Ready compared to the textbook is that it's obviously an online resource. And, and, and that's quite significant in the sense that it, seek, it really seeks to reduce this need for lesson planning and marking uh, for teachers. And, it try, and it's trying to bring some of that excellent content from the textbook to, to life, actually, and bring it off the page. As I say, I think it's a brilliant resource, but Money Ready is slightly different in terms of it takes a more sort of interactive content approach. And it also means actually that by being an online resource, it can be updated. So as, as prices or tax rates change, for example, over time, they can be sort of quite quickly and time effectively updated rather than having to sort of return, to, I guess, return to the printers and print all the textbooks again. But there's no doubt that um, 
what Martin Lewis has done for financial education has been phenomenal in terms of both the, the textbook and, and really bring it, bringing the subject to, to, to life and being a champion of getting it onto the um, curriculum. You know, it's great to see like the work you're doing and, and you know, so many people in, in the space. But yeah, it's like educating parents and educating children. So I think it's, yeah, it's a lot of work. What, I mean, my kids are really young, uh, they're, you know, between eight months and, and five and a half. So, you know, you want to start somewhere, but, you know, what is the right age to start having this conversation with children? And what are like the main concepts for you? Is it more around debt, around saving? Maybe I'm thinking like delayed gratification is a good one. So maybe at which age do you start and, and what, what do you need to teach children on a maybe day-to-day basis? Do you know, I think that question, Emily, is a bit like how long is a piece of string? So um, the, the, the truth is parents know that they're the best place to know their own children. But as, as you've already touched on, it is worth remembering that children's attitudes and experiences of money begin to shape as, you know, as young as seven. So even before they have any direct experience of money themselves, they will be sort of picking this stuff up. And so, so I think it's, it's less about an exact age. And it's much more about an awareness and an understanding that children learn from what they see around them. And so I think I'd split it into two, really. I'd say with younger children, you talked about delayed gratification. That's exactly the sorts of ways to start thinking about money. Now, this is not this is actually not an overt, direct money conversation. This is just the idea that you sort of plan for tomorrow or perhaps you have to wait for something. And um, I'm sure you're well aware of the, um, the very sort of famous marshmallow experiment where children were given a marshmallow and if they could sit there and resist, they'd get another one. And it's interesting to see um, how s- some are able to do that and s- some aren't. So the sorts of things to be thinking, I guess, with younger children is um, it, it is around things like delayed gratification. So it's really hard for us to pa- as parents to say no, but sometimes that can be the, that can be the kindest answers. And I know that's hard when you're standing in a shop and you've got a, a young child tugging at your trouser leg, asking for something. But this idea that you have to sort of wait or you have to earn things, it can be done, as I say, not necessarily in an overtly about money, but in respect to other things. As children get older, Clearly, I think the conversations become a bit more serious. Now, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be sitting down a teenager and explaining the difference between AER and APR, so anything like that. But there, I guess there are a few absolutely key sort of messages to land. And one, I, I think the first one I would say is to take an active interest when it comes to money. And what I mean by that is not not taking a passive approach to money. If I gave you an, an analogy of thinking of money as driving a car, it's something that takes you from A to B. Now, you can only dictate that route if you take control of the steering wheel. So, you know, don't be a passenger and find that you sort of get lost along the route or stuck by the side of the road with nowhere to go in a broken down vehicle. You know, take an active interest. And it really doesn't matter whether you start with, again, to use the car analogy, like a rusty old car or a shiny new sports car, take control of the wheel. And, and taking control is really thinking about things like budgeting. That's, you know, I think that's the, the, the first place to start. Understand what you've got coming in, 
understand what you've, you've got going out. I've been, as children get older, teenagers, and particularly thinking about leaving home or perhaps going to university, debt is something that is likely to creep into conversations. And another thing to say is have those conversations, talk openly and honestly about money, particularly around debt, actually, because debt is, I think, is often seen as a dirty word. But the reality is that for most people, they will need to call upon debt at some point in their lives, whether that be a student loan or starting a business. So it is likely to be part and parcel of young people's lives as they move into adulthood, and it's likely to remain part of their lives for a long time to come. So I think when we think about debt, we really need to start thinking about making a clear distinction between different types of debt. and. It, it sounds simplistic. It's often, sometimes it's described as good debt and bad debt. And really all that means is good debt is the stuff that you borrow, which brings some sort of long-term benefit or enables you to invest or buy something which will appreciate over time. So, you know, a university education, a student loan is a great example. So don't think of it necessarily as a debt, but think of it as an investment in your future or starting a business, you know, borrowing money to start a business. That's something that can provide you with a livelihood and earnings for years to come. So that's what I mean by a good debt. But we do need to make this distinction between that type of borrowing and the borrowing, which brings sort of no lasting benefit. So that's the, you know, the credit cards. Uh, the personal loans, because, you know, you want it now, you haven't got the money, but, you know, I want it, I want it, I want it. So I think that's really important. The, the final part would be, and it's, and it, this is a lot to ask young people to do, but if you've, if you've cracked the budgeting, if you've got, a, you've got a good understanding of what good debt and bad debt looks like, the final part is really, and, and this, this isn't just for kids, this is for us as adults, money is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And this is really saying you may have got some of the short short term stuff in place, and you you know you've you've, you've cracked that, but never lose sight of the, the the long term. And you know that's looking at things like pensions and investing, and really building upon those good foundations so that people have some sort of strong financial. Um, it's all about these strong financial futures again. The conversations are different depending on the age of the children. But the sooner you, you can sort of be aware and start introducing some of the habits and concepts, the better. Yeah, oh, thank you. That's really useful to understand like these different steps. So from budgeting, debt and long term, and that's as adults, that's also the way we should think about money. So, yeah. you know, if you're listening to us, you haven't, you know, you're not clueless about money, but you're also really starting your own marathon. Maybe you can do that with your children. So, you know, you learn about budgeting, you teach them something about budgeting, but have these really open conversations. I think that's, that's really helpful and check money, money ready because there's also lots of, of resources. So what tools are you using? I mean, of course, online, do you use like sort of small modules, little videos? How, I mean, what's the best way to, to get the attention of the children? Because I guess you can't sit them in front of a, you know, two hour um, video about, you know, organizing your personal life. Yeah. So what are the, the tools you're, you're using? Yeah. So it's, it's what money really tries to do. It really tries to sort of bring money to life, I guess, but do it in sort of bite-sized chunks. So there's lots of different sort of modules, if you like. So we look at savings, 
we'll look at spending and sort of break it down into chunks. But it's really trying to make it engaging. So there are videos, they're very short videos, so they're, they're no longer than about ooh, 90 seconds, couple of minutes, that kind of thing. So it really is, it, it's, it's bite-sized chunks. There's um, interactive activities. So again, a good example I would give for younger children is understanding the difference between wants and needs. And you'll have two different shopping baskets. You'll have one for wants and one for needs. And it's, it's sort of dragging and dropping the items and sort of identifying whether buying the latest games console is a, is a want or a need or paying the bills is a want or a need. So it, it, it's little things like that where it's, as I say, it's trying to bring it off the page and, and, and engage children directly. And there's quizzes as well, multiple choice quizzes, nothing too sort of onerous, but and some of them a bit, bit silly, but it's that sense that the children can also sort of test what they know and um, they get a little dashboard and when they've completed the module, um, they get a sort of little medal saying, you know, well done, you completed that. You can once you've finished the entire sort of program, you actually can print off a certificate. So it's it's trying to really, as I say, bring it to life, make it as fun as fun as possible. So and, and I think that's always the best way to learn when we're sort of told you've got to sit down and sort of read a book and write a big long essay on it. It, it doesn't sort of fill the heart with joy. So um, yeah, Money Ready tries to really, I guess, put the funny back into money. Yeah, no, no, and, and the, the website looks really cool. You, you have to see these little um, videos. What about pocket money? And, yes. You know, there's, I mean, should we, if, we, if we're in a position to, um, you know, give some pocket money, should we give some even if, you know, there are small amounts? Is there like an ideal amount? And also there's lots of prepaid cards now on the market. Yeah. You could also use, use this. What's, what's your view on, um, on pocket money? I think pocket money is is really the best way to learn by doing. I think it's I think it's a really valuable thing actually pocket money. But because in the same way you don't become a brain surgeon just by reading the books or you don't become I don't know a champion racing driver by playing Super Mario Kart and and money's no different. You learn by doing. So a pocket money is a brilliant way place to start. And Actually, as a parent, you can decide how, how you want to do this. Do you, you may decide that you feel that you want to attach something to that. So the child needs to earn it or it enables you to, again, it is, is to have a conversation. So encourage them maybe to save a set amount regularly or have something specific um, that they wish to sort of save up for. If that's my son, it's the latest games console. But I think the other really important thing with pocket money is letting them make mistakes. And that might sound sort of counterintuitive, but I mean, as adults, we've all made mistakes and often it's the best way to learn. So, uh, I, I, I mean, I found this hard, but there have been occasions where one of my kids' heads has been turned by something and they suddenly want to sort of blow everything they've been saving on that sort of new shiny thing in the corner. And I've had to stop myself, oddly, from stopping them in their tracks. And It sounds really odd, but as I say, the, the good thing with pocket money is that mistakes are small and they don't have the same consequences as when we make mistakes as an adult. So tough though it uh, might be, I would say let them make their own mistakes and pocket money is, is actually weirdly a good, it is a good way to sort of learn for better and for worse. How much? Again, it's a bit like that piece of string question, but I, I mean, the one thing I would say is first and foremost, you've got to have your own house in order first. So if you're struggling financially yourself, 
I completely understand that this might not be uh, your first priority. So don't feel a sort of pressure. You've got to get your own financial house in order first. But for those who are in a position to give children pocket money, I think I, I would actually say little and often and start small. So if you are on a small budget as an adult, you have to make some tough decisions. And that's actually a really good lesson for kids with pocket money. So I would actually say, you know, don't feel that it's got to be a huge, huge sum of money, because if you hand over a lot of money, actually, they don't have to sort of learn to make decisions between one thing or the other. While there's no sort of set number, I would say little and often start small and and also consistency. And this is actually one of the things my kids used to pull me up onto. And it actually, it leads on to prepaid cards because I would forget, they wouldn't let me forget, of course, but sometimes I would forget. So, you know, Saturday would roll around and mom, you haven't given us our pocket money yet. So consistency is key. And, and again, that's actually quite a good lesson about money in terms of when they come to earn it and understanding that a certain amount is coming in at this point and that has to stretch for the next week or the month or whatever it happens to be. The prepaid cards, now they're interesting. I've had some sort of experience of this myself. So the names out there is things like Go Henry, Rooster Money, Nimble, these types of apps. And but, but, but actually some of them also have what are called virtual money trackers. So you don't necessarily have to have a card and a, a physical link to a real life money account attached. And this is actually how I started off with my son. It was as much for him and I to keep track of um, had I paid him his pocket money that particular week and how he was looking to allocate it. So it allows you to sort of create little pots. So you might have a saving pot, you might have a spending pot, you might have a giving pot. And when he was young, that was that was kind of enough. Now, prepaid cards, they do come with fees. So I'll give you the example of my son. He was receiving five pounds pocket money a week, but the fees for the for a card would have been, I think it was two pounds a month or two pounds fifty a month, something like that. Which actually is quite depending on how you look at things, but it's actually it could be seen as quite expensive for the amount of money sort of sitting behind it. So we used it as a a virtual thing. We didn't actually link it to a card. Now both of my children are older, so I, my t- my kids are um, in their teens. And they have very much, they have sort of social lives of their own. They're going out with their friends to take the train into town or go out for lunch, those kind of things. That's actually where these cards have really come into their own. So I have actually done one of those for my own children. Um, And I've actually used an app called Revolut. And that means that I've actually set up an account for myself, but I have links to the kids' accounts. Now, they are phenomenally powerful in terms of they the children feel as if they've got independence so they have an app on their phones and their their phones are probably the most important things in their lives when they um, become teens sadly but um, they are able to see at the touch of a button on their phones how much money they have in their accounts they can they can do these saving pots kind of things but it also allows me as a parent to have visibility and to put certain checks and balances and have some sort of control over what they're doing. So I can turn things off. Uh, I can put in limits. Um, I actually get alerts when my son disappears off after school to the shop. To He thinks he's buying a sneaky bag of sweets, but um, I know otherwise. So 
they 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 are um, the, the sort of the rise of fintech and these kind of prepaid cards and and apps uh, can be a really good tool as a parent and a child for learning how to uh, how to manage money. No, they seem they seem amazing and really really useful for older children. So we'll add all the resources in the in the notes of the podcast so you can check all these apps. We were talking previously about books for for children or teens. I actually read a book called Billionaire Boy by David Williams, which sounds quite interesting. I read that during lockdown, but I also don't have teenage kids, so. I mean, is how easy or hard it is to ask kids to read book about money, and maybe you have, you know, books you could recommend for maybe younger children. I think you know, it's 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 really hard with teenage kids to say, right, this is what you, I want you to sit down and read this book. Or certainly in my experience, it has been. I think perhaps some of the other parents out there have have more uh, more control over their brood, but. Um, so I kind of steered away from that. Um, there, there are books out there, but. Um, I think perhaps having a mother who's focused on money ready, it sort of slightly drives them bonkers as well. So the last thing they want to do is read books about it. But what was good, and it comes back to this idea that money doesn't have to be about pounds and pence, and actually kids start to pick it up from a, a young age. There's some phenomenal books out there, you know, books that we've all heard of before, which are really good about sort of teaching. Again, it's these habits and attitudes around money. And I'm thinking, uh, particularly went for younger children. So I'm thinking particular of things like, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You know, Charlie, he he comes from very modest means. He's got high integrity. Uh, you know, his head isn't turned by some of these other things. And yet he meets children who are perhaps sort of very greedy and want, you know, I can't remember the character, is it? I think it's Baruch Salt who wants it now. So actually coming back to these sort of delayed gratification type of lessons, there are books where it's not talking about money, but that those sort of concepts and ideas are very much at the heart of them. The other one that springs to mind is actually, um, and I've heard I've heard um, this reference with regard to uh, financial sort of education for adults, and that is the idea of the hare and the tortoise, which I think is an, one of Aesop's fables. And it's this idea that slow and steady wins the race. So when I was talking about it's a marathon and not a sprint, you know, it's it's having these good financial habits which stay with you and you have this sort of long-term, sort of steady approach and long-term focus. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting, actually. There's there's lots of, a lot of really traditional books. The Emperor's New Clothes, that's another classic, where the emperor doesn't realise that he's not actually wearing anything. And it's a bit like a story of our time where, you know, don't believe everything on social media. You know, don't believe that the pictures sort of tell you the full story. And I think that's so important for young children uh, to understand that, you know, basically all that glitters is not necessarily um, gold. So there's some great sort of classic books, I guess, out there, particularly for younger children, which can sort of teach you some of these concepts. Yeah, that's so important. Thank you. Thank you so much, Helen, for this. Uh, we'll definitely read this. And I also wanted to speak about saving for kids with you. I know it's a completely different subject, but I feel since, you know, we have parents listening to this podcast or maybe you don't even have children, how do you, do you plan for the future? Because saving for children, if you can't do it, I mean, I, I think your top priority should be yourself. That's the yeah. best gift you could give to your children is making sure you have your finances in orders. You have some savings for yourself, for your pension, so they don't have to pay for it. Yeah. But if you can... It's also a good way to 
pass on money tax-free. So, I mean, can, can you just give us a brief overview of, you know, if you want to give money to your children when, you know, as soon as they're born and if you want to give like small amounts regularly, what are the, the products you could use and why, why this is important to, to do it? I mean, I think the, the starting point, Emily, is, is really just to echo what you said, which is first and foremost, do you have to have your own financial house in order first? So what I mean by that is if you have any consumer debt, so credit cards, personal loans, make sure you've got an emergency fund in place. It, it's to use the sort of the airline safety analogy, which is make sure you fit your own oxygen mask first before sort of assisting others. So um, I, I think, I mean, you, you've said it, but I think it's really important to stress that 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 that, that is that that's actually the best gift that you can give to your kids, uh, which might, might sound unusual, but being able to put food on the table and have a roof over your house um, is going to be by far the best financial sort of foundations that you can provide for the kids. If you have the benefit and the luxury of excess beyond that, that's great. And there, and as you say, there are there's there's numerous options out there for um, investing for children's futures. Now, when my children were born, that was in the era of um, what we call child trust funds. Now, you can't open a child trust fund today, but you can open what what followed, which is a junior ISA. So this is something that allows you to put in you or grandparents or whoever it might be can put in up to nine thousand pounds per annum and whether that's savings cash savings or invested in say the stock market any interest or growth earned on a junior isa will be entirely tax-free so you won't pay income tax and you won't pay any capital gains tax on any capital gains so that's one great way to save. I think the other thing that's attractive about something like a junior ISA is that that money gets locked up until the child is 18 years old. So if you're sort of concerned about uh, children dipping into <laughs> savings uh, as they sort of come into their teens, that simply can't happen. And actually having that 18-year sort of lockup, if you like, assuming that you start right from day one, 18 years is a is a long time. When we talk about investing as adults, we often say, you know, investing is a long term, something that should be done on with a long term view, because um, stock markets can fluctuate over time. They do tend to grow and go up over long periods of time. So 18 years is a really long, long period and gives you a, a good period of time to ride out the sort of the inevitable ups and downs um, of the stock market. Holding it in cash is, of course, an option. But as we know, cash uh, interest earned on cash, particularly now, and we're particularly at a time where um, there's discussions about even having negative interest rates. So you're not going to see significant growth in your cash savings over, over time. And that's before you take into consideration things like inflation, which will sort of eat away at the value of what that cash can be used to buy in the future. So um, junior rice as a one. Would you believe children can take out pensions? I think this is often not known. <laughs> uh, obviously, a pension is a very, very long-term product to, to open, but children or adults can commit for children. I think it's up to £2,880 a year. And 
a child can then earn tax relief, despite the fact the children aren't paying any tax because they're not working, tax relief on top of the, that contribution uh, will be added. So that means that a child's pension, a child could have as much as £3,600 put into a pension for them every year. So as I say, it's not necessarily the top priority or the first thing people think of, but do be aware that children can have pensions open for them too. But there's there's actually a myriad of different things you can do. You can, if adults are concerned about passing on wealth tax-free, they can actually have, you have an, every adult has an annual gift allowance where they can gift up to £3,000 in total. So you could have lots of smaller uh, gifts, but in total that come up to £3,000, it falls out of inheritance tax issues in the future. Parents can make tax-free gifts to children on marriage. There's all sorts of different uh, sort of products and ways to save for your children for the very the very long term. As you say, if, if you can, so yeah, if you've repaid your, your debt, you have your own savings, you're, you're already saving and investing for yourself. I think it's a great way to pass wealth to the to the next generation because of the massive tax advantages. So even, I mean, if you're a high rate taxpayer, you should definitely look into this because they're going to make a big difference. But now one issue I have is, you know, my kids are going to turn 18 at some point, they will have this little pot in their whatever junior eyes are that have been, you know, invested in the stock market for 18 years. Yeah. So that's going to be a nice pot of money, potentially. I mean, do you have to tell them what are they going to do? I mean, 18, are you, you know, even if you've followed money ready and done all your, you know, budgeting courses and stuff, can you just take the money and, and, and spend it all? Yeah. <laughs> The bad news is you do, you do have to tell them, and even if you don't tell them, somebody else will it, it is likely to. So um, it's a great question because so what happens at eighteen, whether a child has a a child trust fund or a junior ISA, when they turn eighteen, that that becomes the legal ownership of the child, and so it's up to them what they decide to do with the money. So I guess you could argue this is why financial education is so important. You want to be having these conversations long, long, long before the age of 18 so that they don't go and sort of blow it on a, you know, a lovely holiday or a flashy car and have nothing left if, if, you, if you know, if the pot is that big. But also for those, as I say, for those who are hoping to keep it secret from them, the bad news is that simply um, is, it won't happen because... Where, wherever your money is invested or that product was taken out, they will be writing to both parents and guardians to tell them that this product is going to mature as such at 18. And they will be contacting the child to make them aware that that's about to happen too. And in actual fact, the process actually starts well before a child's 18th birthday. So some providers will be seeking to actually contact the children at the age of 16 because they are they're actually able to start making decisions on how their money is invested from the age of 16 so um, that's something to be aware of where they go with that money at 18 well that is very much as i say their choice so uh, there's again there's lots of good ideas out there for the long term so they may want they may wish to convert their junior isa into an adult isa so that's that would be a very simple thing to do you're probably aware of lifetime isas as well that might be another option particularly for those looking either at saving for a pension or to buy their first home. 
but there's a sort of a myriad of in between as well you know this sort of traditional savings and of course um, that money is then there so they they may wish to spend it too that's really why the financial education part of it is so important so that um, uh, we sort of try and help people make smart money decisions yeah no thank you Ellen so really really interesting I think you know, thinking about your own financial futures because before you think about, you know, saving for your children because this can be more like, you know, coming from a place of, of privilege where you actually have money and can yeah. do that. But if you can't, it's really educating your children online. There's so many resources, lots of free resources also. So really starting to do that for yourself and for your children. And then if you can potentially also, you know, give them money and think about these the, the implications of actually giving money to your children and should you do it or not i think this is this is also an important conversation but do you think you should actually give money to your children helen if you can do you know i think it's one of those questions there's no right or wrong um it, yeah. it, it's one of those particularly as a parent actually no parent likes to be told how to raise their children and i so i think it is a very personal a very personal decision so i i would I, I would actually say there is genuinely no no right or wrong, but uh, and, yeah. and as you just said again, you know, it really does. The starting point has to also be making sure that you're you're looking after your own finances first. Yeah, Ellen, I have five quick fire questions for you, please. Okay, what's your top financial goal? Oh, I think that's easy actually. Financial independence. It's not a number. It's not a physical thing. It's um, it's having that independence to to choose and being in control. What's the best financial decision you've ever made? This is a bit of an odd one, but it was actually to ignore some unsolicited solicitor's advice. And and, and what I mean by that is um, when we were looking to buy a house, a solicitor said that we should take out as biggest possible mortgage that we could. Mm, um, good advice. <laughs> and I think that probably suited him because I'm, I'm assuming that um, the fees were based off the, the back of that. Now, I appreciate that, you know, house prices. Uh, so the, the, the thinking was his advice was house prices only go up. So take out as much money as you can in mortgage and buy the biggest property. And, do you know, ironically, of course, if you look at the numbers, that probably, you know, the, the numbers add up on that. That's fine. However, it was um, it was unsolicited advice. Didn't ask for it, but also it just completely ignores the. Um, it comes back to that financial independence. The what I just said before. It it ignores what perhaps my personal financial priorities are, which were sleeping at night without sort of having this heavy burden of a huge mortgage weighing me down, or preferring to have some flexibility to do other things, or you know perhaps start a family, whatever it might be. So strangely, my best decision was to ignore that and to sort of understand what my own financial priorities and goals were and to be confident in doing that yeah and and your your worst financial decision uh, well I've got confession here and this comes as a fund manager because I should have known better it's actually failing to understand risk properly when I was first um, starting out so when people first start to invest, I think the thing that sort of often holds them back is it's risky. I'm going to lose everything. And the truth is, if you invest for the long term in a across a wide, diversified pool of different investments, 
they, they, they're losing everything, but it's, it's actually highly, highly unlikely if you manage risk correctly. So I think my worst financial decision was weirdly being when it came to investing personally was being a bit too cautious, actually, and not taking a longer term view and really understanding really understanding what was meant by risk and the relationship between risk and return. No, super important. What is financial independence for you then? I guess for me, it's the freedom to choose. It's not having to compromise on values and beliefs. So actually, you know, you, you can sort of vote with your money, actually. And so, so financial independence, it gives you choices. And as I say, you don't have to compromise. It also means being uh, not being dependent on others for me, um, being literally independent of not having to um, re- rely on other people. And at the moment, what are the things you spend the most money on, on the lighter note? Yeah, so <laughs> at, at the moment, I think partly because of sort of lockdown and everything that's going on, I would say not a great deal because typically the thing I've always spent most money on has actually been traveling and experiences. So, you know, doing stuff. And I think that beats possessions every time. So I guess the good news of lockdown has been that we haven't spent as much money on holidays or, you know, day trips or whatever it might be. But um, it's quite sad, too, because um, that's that's the stuff I love. You know, that's what builds the memories, I guess. So that, that's typically what I spend money on. Although I have just treated myself and I will give this lady a nod. I have just bought because I because you can't do these other things. Perhaps you sort of focus. My focus has changed a bit in lockdown. So I've actually bought a painting. Nice. And mm-hmm. I just I just love it. It sort of fills my heart with joy. So I think the la- hopefully the lady who's painted it will be listening. But it's a it's a it's a lovely painting. So that's that's that that's kind of my travel at the minute. I will look at this painting, <laughs> and <laughs> it will transport me to um, to different places. Thank you so much. No, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Just to finish off, can you tell me, you know, what's next for you and um, and Money Ready? What's next? Well, I, I'll be honest. Money Ready remains very much a work in progress, and I, I guess what's next is I'm, I would be continuing to work towards really transitioning it from what is a product into, I guess, a sustainable business. So it's looking at ways to develop it as a the, the actual content and platform looking at funding, looking at ways to grow it in terms of users, uh, receiving feedback. That's all kind that kind of thing. It's a really difficult question, I think, in terms of the what's next for anybody at the minute <laughs> in current times. But that's yep. that's what I shall be um, focusing on. Great. So should we follow you maybe on uh, on Instagram? Miss Money Ready? Yes, you'll find me on Instagram at Miss, I think it's underscore Money Ready. Yep. Um, or come along to the website, which is uh, www.moneyready.org. That's that's where you'll find me. I do I, I occasionally hang out on Twitter, but not very often. So I think Instagram and the website itself is the best way to best place to find me. Great. Well, Helen, thank you so much for you know all your great tips and, and guidance today. I really enjoyed this episode, and yeah, I wish you all the best. I mean, especially over the coming uh, coming few months. My pleasure, Emily, and, and and thank you. Thank you for inviting me and um, keep up the good work that you do at Vestpod. I haven't told you this, but before I even started on my money ready journey, um, I was looking admiringly from afar. So I think it's fantastic what you do. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you. Bye. Speak to you soon. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please take a couple of seconds to rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our community on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to our newsletter on vespot.com. Feel free to email me with your comments and questions over at emily at vespot.com. Thank you. Speak to you soon.